The Gist is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like for today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. And by Spotless, a sexy, bold drama laced with dark humor from Esquire Network. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dramas. And tune into the Spotless season premiere, November 14th at 10 Eastern, 9 Central on Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 10th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So tonight is another Republican debate. Luckily, there are all these articles like uh, Here's One from Time, How to Watch Tonight's Republican Debate Online, or Fox, this is from The Washington Post, Jeb Bush Faces Key Test at Fourth GOP Debate. Fox moderator to GOP debaters, be careful about looking like whiners. I think we're overthinking this. How to watch the debate. Okay, the online part. I mean, you probably Google it. It might come up. How to watch it? You can can't be aggressive. You can't go to the debate. The, the Republican debate is more like a wild beast. You have to take a step back and let that wild beast come to you. And when it comes to you, Ben Carson will say some stuff that's not true and he'll be fact checked to death and he'll still go up two points in the poll. Donald Trump will display total lack of knowledge about something specific. He'll go up about three points in the poll. People will give zingers left and right except Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush will once again prove himself to be terrible at debating, and it won't matter. These things are shows. I don't think that I've ever come away from a series of debates with more of this conviction. Wow. Wow, does that spectacle in no way correlate to the job of the presidency. I do not think from these debates that Jeb Bush has done anything to disqualify himself from the job of the presidency. I mean, he may have disqualified himself from the job of the presidency elsewhere, but he's just bad at zingers. You know who never has to engage in a quick rat-a-tat of zingers? The president. He's pre-zung. You got zung if you would let the president in the room. Consider yourself zung. So the skills of a debate and the skills of a president... They, they couldn't translate less. I say let them do an American Gladiators, American Ninja Warrior course, but still, it will be an entertaining time. We still will break it down. Now, another aspect of the debate that you will be sure to see is that everyone will talk about who they're not going to negotiate with, who they're not going to bring to the table, what agreements they're going to rip up. So on today's show, we have the antithesis of that, an actual statesman, an actual American politician who held extremely important elected office. He was the great compromiser, Henry Clay. Then I will spiel about sensitivity on college campuses. But first, the man who saved America at least six times over. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity. Caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 Vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings, plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. 
If you know one thing about Henry Clay, you probably know his appellation, the great compromiser. Think of what that phrase would do to a politician of today. Think of how damning it would be. Well, the phrase the great compromiser cuts a couple of ways. And in fact, Henry Clay's life, though underexamined and perhaps unfairly reduced to just being the great compromiser, also contain many, many different strands. Writing about Henry Clay, America's greatest statesman, so you know what his thesis is, is Harlow Giles Unger. Mr. Unger is a former distinguished visiting fellow at George Washington's Mount Vernon. He's written 24 books, including 11 biographies of America's founding fathers. His latest is Henry Clay. Hello, Mr. Unger. How do you do? I'm well. So, you've written so much about founding fathers, but you call Henry Clay the greatest statesman. So not a founding father, but why is he the greatest statesman? The United States was built on compromise. The Declaration of Independence was a compromise. Half the people who signed it uh, didn't want independence. They wanted autonomy and self-government, but not. they wanted to stay British. Right. Uh, the Constitution was a compromise between uh, southern states and northern states, rural interests and urban interests. Uh, our, our first government uh, after the Constitution had to compromise all the way. Washington was a great compromiser and kept Southern and Northern interests uh, together. From that point on, the government survived until the Civil War because of five great monumental compromises engineered by Henry Clay. Okay, who, so let's tick them off for the historical record. Go ahead. Well, the first one was in 1820, the Missouri Compromise. Uh, again, uh, the, the nation was about to split up. Uh, the Southerners were uh, about to break off from the Northerners. Uh, Missouri had been part of the Louisiana Territory and applied for statehood. And so many Southerners with their slaves had moved into Missouri that Missouri was going to become a state as a slave state. And that would have given the Southern slave states a majority in the Senate. They would have passed a law mandating the legalization of slavery in the entire Union. The North was having none of it. Uh, they threatened to break off with the South, and the nation would have split. Uh, Henry Clay at the time, like his president, James Monroe, had a vision of the United States growing into this great empire stretching from sea to shining sea, becoming the most prosperous nation on earth with all of its resources. And now the South wanted to split off, which would have divided us into two, possibly three small nations, uh, militarily impotent. Uh, the great powers of the day, Spain, France, or Britain, yeah. would have moved in. And in retrospect, because of who we are now, the the stuff that happened seems inevitable, but it wasn't. It was a real possibility that oh, the U.S. could fracture. Absolutely. Uh, Henry Clay looked for a compromise. He searched, uh, unlike many of our more recent speakers of the House, he searched for a way to uh, find common interests uh, to keep the nation together, no matter how unhappy they may be, but to keep the union together. Well, just at that time, Maine wanted to split off from Massachusetts. Here was the opportunity, uh, link Maine's ac uh, accession to statehood to Missouri's, uh, the one with no restrictions on either one. The one would come in as a free state. The other would come in as a slave state. The balance of power in the Senate and the House would have remained the same. And that's exactly what happened. He held the union together. 
four more compromises over the next 30 years, mm -hmm. accomplished the same thing. It held the union together. Meanwhile, two new generations grew up, and he was able, with Monroe's help, to begin uh, establishing what he called the American system. It was his dream to link all of these states together with a network of roads, canals, and eventually railways. At the time, in 1820, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't travel in this country. You had to go on horseback. Right. Uh, and his dream was to have state-federal government cooperation in building these, this network of communication. It started to, to come true in the years that followed. And tens of thousands of Americans began to travel to move across state lines, uh, establish farms in the wilderness, uh, build banks and businesses. And, and in 1820, whereas the average American would name his state as his country, mm -hmm. by 1850, after the American system allowed all of this traveling and, and, and transfers, uh, the average American in the 20 nor northern, central, and western states called themselves Americans. And splitting up became unthinkable. Uh, farmers had customers and sources of supplies across state lines. Uh, so did banks. So did merchants. Uh, they had relatives across state lines, and they wanted to travel and see their relatives and vice versa. The, it was unthinkable to break up the union of these 20 states stretching from California to Maine. So many of his compromises were over the fundamental issue, the issue of slavery, Compromise of 1850, the Missouri Compromise, as you talked about. You know, he had a complicated relationship because he was a slave owner, yet against the institution. Is that right? Exactly. And he had no choice. He perceived that the country had no choice. And so these compromises that maybe we look back at today and say, well, he was just forestalling the inevitable or he was allowing for slave interests to persist at the time. And I mean, that's not an accurate way to look at it. Well, what most people forget is the 10th Amendment. Slavery was not in the Constitution. Slavery was a state issue. State law in Kentucky, where uh, Henry Clay lived, uh, did made it a felony to for any slave owner to emancipate his slaves. The same held true in Virginia. Washington had slaves, yet hated slavery. Remember, slavery went back to the beginning of the 18th century. And in the early 1700s, England depended on the slave trade for, for its revenues. And it shipped tens of thousands of slaves to the Caribbean to pick uh, the sugar islands, to mm -hmm. pick sugar cane, plant quick sugar cane. Well, they didn't need any more slaves. They were flooded with slaves. So Queen Anne, good Queen Anne, as she was called, started dumping slaves into Virginia. In 1715, Virginians, the tobacco plantation owners, petitioned Queen Anne to stop sending slaves. They didn't want them. A, they couldn't speak English. B, they were unskilled, which was fine for sugarcane planting and, and, and harvesting, but not for tobacco. Tobacco takes a skilled worker to plant, harvest, and treat. Queen Anne refused. Uh, we fast forward to the 1770s. Two generations later, the slaves are a fact of life. George Washington, as a little boy, grew up with slaves. He couldn't emancipate them. Yeah. And now you had hundreds of thousands of them with only one, if any, skills. They were a huge burden 
Washington had two hundred, no, three hundred twenty-five slaves. One third were babies. What was he going to do? <laughs> throw them out? One third were crippled and elderly. He can't throw throw them out. They couldn't work. They were a huge burden. But there was no solution. Now you had hundreds of thousands of slaves in the South, with no cities. No manufacturing plants, no place for them to have apprenticeship programs, no place for them to go. The road out of one plantation went to the beginning of the road into the next. All there was for them was unskilled labor, and no one knew what to do, not Washington and certainly not Henry Clay. All they could do, Henry Clay had a, about a dozen slaves, all they could do was treat them as kindly as possible, as house servants in effect. And that's what Henry Clay did and, and most other people like him. And he was one of the founders of the American Colonization Society, uh, which wanted to help the freed slaves of the North who were treated as badly by society as some of the slaves in the South. They couldn't get jobs. They couldn't go to school. They were deprived of all their rights, yet they were free. Right. Unless we think that running the House of Representatives or being an important senator, and he was senator and representative at the same time, by the way. At, he, one, at one point. Yeah, yeah, which is very funny. Unless we think it was easier today because they were all the landed gentry, they were, mo, mo, they were of similar backgrounds, you know, things might seem to be more diverse today. You write about the insanity of the house, you know, Randolph's dogs on the floor, which when I was reading it, I thought it meant his acolytes. No, this representative literally brought his hunting dogs onto the floor. So it this was, was bedlam. A, yeah, it was bedlam. And was it just through personal skill, standing taller than most, being a rough-hewn man <laughs> who was a take-charge guy that Henry Clay was able to herd these interests? And also a lot in common with especially the Westerners uh, who had all set out, as he did, from uh, cities in the east. He, he grew up in Richmond and moved into the frontier country. Lexington had just become a—I mean, Kentucky had just become a state. Uh, Lexington was a small town when he got there. Uh, and uh, a whole group of Westerners had moved out into Tennessee, Kentucky, as these became states— and their interests were pretty much the same as those of Henry Clay. So he had them on his side, and he built a loyal following behind him. And at times when he explained how uh, a little, if you give a little here, you can get a little there, uh, these, these people who benefited from compromising became his followers yes. and, and believed in him and recognized that... Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to give a little here if I want to get anything. When we think about the lack of compromise today, why is that? This is, this is the idea I got from your book. Some of it is the personal skill of the leader, certainly. Some of it is the tradition, or I should say the necessity of the time. Without compromise back then, there would be no United States. The right. stakes are not that high now. But I also think the actual rules of the Senate and House might make it harder for compromise now. Filibuster... Uh -huh. I disagree with you. Okay. They could filibuster then, and they could filibuster in the House, actually, in those days. Okay. Uh, you have a group of isolated little men and women, a so-called Freedom Caucus or Shutdown Caucus, yeah. as it's called. One guy who <laughs> lives behind a cactus tree in Arizona uh, claims that 
and, and this is a quote by this guy, decisions on the federal level don't represent the will of the people. Well, uh, this little desert rat has never been to, to Philadelphia, Who is to Boston. Uh, Who is I, I don't want to mention his name. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's not been to Chicago, to Philadelphia, to Boston, to New York, to, to, to the big cities. He's never set foot in those cities. How does he have the gall? to claim to know the will of the people. Mm-hmm. He's talking about a, a few desert rats. And this guy from South Carolina, Mulvaney, mm-hmm. it's no coincidence that he, he's uh, in this uh, group of shutdown people. South Carolina was the state that fired the first shots in the Civil War. Yeah. Now, these men... Always the first to, to yeah. put up their hands for secession. These men and women from these little tiny areas uh, who want to control the, the majority of these people, they're akin to Nazis... And communists, that's how the Nazis took over in the Weimar Republic, this little group with a little power to shut down the whole uh, 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 National Assembly. So during Clay's time, were there no such, there wasn't a faction of 15 to 20 percent? Absolutely. Clay, okay, so but what Clay did he do with shut them, them down. How because did he do he, it? He wouldn't let, give them the floor. Right. Boehner did not now use Now there's too power. much freedom. Boehner never gave up his uh, link to this uh, rural area north of, of, of Cincinnati. Uh, he believed as speaker that he still represented those people. The, pro- the thing is, when you become speaker, you lose your vote and you lose the right to debate. Mm. You become speaker of all of the entire house. You become a representative of all of the people of the United States. You no longer represent your district. Well, during my lifetime, I don't know about during your lifetime, it seems that the speaker has been inherently partisan. But it wasn't like that for Clay? Only when it came to national interests, mm-hmm. not to local interests. He would, uh, Clay would never give in to local interests. And we've had speakers, uh, well, you're younger than I, so you probably don't remember Sam Rayburn. No, I don't. Uh, Tip, was, Tip O'Neill was the first one I remember. Uh, but he, he worked as Democrat, and he worked very closely with Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, right. over eight years. And they got things done. Both represented all the people of the United States. Uh, unfortunately, I think our presidents have become more and more partisan, uh, as has the speakers. We just simply have to get away from that. I'm not quite sure how we do it. We can hope that the new speaker, Ryan, he's showing signs of wanting to do that. Says the right thing, at least. We have to give him a chance now and see if he can do it. And what about the idea that to be compromising is a weakness? I am uncompromising is either explicitly or implicitly said by all these candidates. How has it come to that? It's come to that through ignorance because to be a compromise is to be intelligent. That's true, but I also think it's a great luxury of our age to say I'm uncompromising. It's an ability to see everybody's point of view and find the common ground, and that takes great intelligence, great knowledge. It's no coincidence that these little Nazis in the the, uh, Freedom Caucus also want to cut back on education. (laughs) They want the people to stay as ignorant as possible so that they can remain in power in their little fiefdoms, wherever they are, whether it's Arizona, California, parts of the South. Uh, That's always the way with these people. They want an ignorant and depend on an ignorant population. These guys now, even moderate, so-called moderate members of the Republican Party especially, fear getting primaried. They, They only fear attacks from their right flank. That, 
I don't think that was around during Clay's time. I mean, he didn't ever fear for re-election. He didn't have to. Yeah. But locally, most of these these fellows today don't face much opposition mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Pew had a poll and they asked people the percent who say they liked elected officials who make compromises. 56% of the American populace said they liked elected officials who made compromises. 39% said they liked those who stick to their positions. But at the polarized extremes, consistently conservative respondents, 63% said they want stick to their positions. Only 32% want compromises. And of the consistently liberal, 82 it was exact opposite. 82% want compromises. So I think this probably gets back to your idea of this small number, in the spe- specifically in the Freedom or the, uh, the Heck No Caucus. Well, uh, this goes back to the Nazis and communists. They didn't, yep. want, they, they didn't like compromise either. Hitler didn't like compromise. Stalin didn't like compromise. They want control. And they don't care what the majority thinks. And they don't care about any kind of compromise. This is the way we do it. Historian Harlow Giles Unger has written 11 biographies of America's founding fathers, and he's out with a new one about the next generation, Henry Clay, America's greatest statesman. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a privilege to be on your show. This episode is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into the light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against a backdrop of Gene's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard, Gene Martin and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little help cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th, 10 o'clock, 9 central on the Esquire Network. And now the spiel. Here's your safe space. I want to start by acknowledging my white male privilege. I have not been blackmailed into acknowledging my white male privilege. I just thought it was time. That was also one of the prerequisites in the removal of Timothy Wolf as president. Nope, former president of the University of Missouri. Here were the uh, protesters, including a hunger striker's first demands. We demand that the University of Missouri system president, Tim Wolf, writes a handwritten apology, right? So typed, would not do handwritten apology to the concerned student 1950 demonstrators and holds a press conference in the Mizzou Student Center reading the letter. In the letter and at the press conference, Tim Wolf must acknowledge his white male privilege and recognize that systems of oppression exist. Well, I guess he quit rather than having to do it. Maybe he was embarrassed about his handwriting. I'm not denigrating the idea of white male privilege. I literally am acknowledging there's a whole lot of white male privilege going on. Don't believe me? All right, let's play a game. Let's play fantasy society. We start off and we just draft people from different demographics, and the name of the game is to accrue as much capital. Who are you going to use with your first draft pick? You're going to use the white woman? You're going to use the Hispanic male? No, you're going to use your first draft pick, the white male, if you want to do things. And the white male leads in all the categories in fantasy society. It leads in not getting hypertension. It leads in avoiding stop and frisk. It leads in lack of barriers in the workplace and avoidance of sexual harassment. You're going to want to go white male there. So I acknowledge that. As for the other things that the Missouri students were saying, I don't want to presume 
There were definitely some chronicled incidences of hate speech and Confederate flags. It was more than just the 7% of students on campus who are black. Faculty banded with them. Students of all demographics banded with them. The Missouri football team tweeted this out. Now, I know all this, and I know that Tim Wolf stepped down because I read about it. I heard about it on the radio. I saw pictures of what was going on. And I guess to the students who were victorious, the fact that I know about it is somehow regrettable. Can you tell him how You don't have a right to take our photos. All right, that might have been a little confusing. I'll tell you what was going on there. Tim Ty, a photographer, was trying to take photographs at the University of Missouri, and the students there didn't like it. The students started chanting, go, go, go. One blonde-haired woman said, leave these students alone in their, quote, personal space. Tim Ty says, again, the First Amendment, that works for you and me. The right to assemble part, that's for you. The freedom of the press part, that's for me. And then a student starts talking about her safe space. So Tim Ty says, there's not a law about that. There's not a law about that. Eventually, the students start bodily pressing into him, moving along, asserting, I have the right to walk forward. A person in the crowd asserts that Tim Ty, the photographer, lost. You lost this one, bro. You lost this one, bro. Back up. You lost this one, bro. You just lost this one, bro. You got to wonder where these students get their weird ideas about media freedom. Well, wonder no more because this video ends with a woman later identified as Missouri assistant professor Melissa Click calling for goons to descend on the reporter. You need to get out. I actually don't. All right. Hey, who wants to help me get this reporter out of here? I need some muscle over here. That sentence, I need muscle to get the reporter out of here, that's getting a lot of attention. She is a professor of communication. But I think the rest of the story is actually more troubling. All of the students asserting over and over, safe space, safe space. You're an unethical reporter. You do not respect our space. This echoes what happened last week at Yale. There, an administrator named Nicholas Christakis engaged with students who were upset about an email that his wife, who's a fellow Yale professor, wrote. The email was arguing that it's not the university's place to punish students who have insensitive Halloween costumes. So we see in this series of videos, we see Nicholas Christakis in very patient tones, talking to students, trying to listen to students. They've surrounded him. So at one point, he turns around to talk to the students who are behind him who were saying something. And then the students in front of him start screaming at him, don't turn your back at me. At another point, we hear a student complaining that the Halloween letter created an unsafe space. That student continues. She says the email created an unsafe space. It's your job to create a place of comfort and home for the students that live in Silliman. You have not done that. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Then, then why the fuck did you accept the position? Because why I have the fuck di- hired you? I have a different vision. You should step down. If that is what you think about being a master, you should step down. It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. Do you understand that? It's about creating a home here. You are not doing that. You're supposed You're to be our advocate. That. 
Well, I think I've discovered the worst job in America, master of Silliman College at Yale University. And unlike Missouri President Wolf, who was a businessman without a real academic background, Christakis is a professor of sociology. He studies longevity, happiness, the impact of social networks on human activity. He obviously has the patience of Job, the intellect of Solomon, and he should step down. How do you even have a debate these days? How do you disagree in this moment of safe spaces and privilege acknowledgement? What happened to actually we disagree? It seems, I don't know, maybe it's an exaggeration. Maybe the media are just cherry picking the few thousand examples of irate students demanding that their feelings be honored over a thought that they object to. Speakers are protested. Administrators are screamed at. Protests or sit-ins are waged. But what about disagreement? What about creating a safe space for, I disagree? I am not oppressing you. I'm disagreeing with you. I'm not exerting my privilege. I differ from you on a matter of thought. We seem to have no way to communicate that idea anymore. Or maybe I'm just being hoodwinked by the media who are showing a few students not acting as most of them do. Well, luckily for me and my children, my future little entitled tyrants, college will cost $125,000 a year. So I will be enrolling them in a trade school. I hope they will become locksmiths and possibly they'll open a shop selling safe spaces. That's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi's moment of greatest compromise was when her one friend on a road trip wanted to listen to Billy Joel and her other friend wanted to listen to Gordon Lightfoot. So Andrea decided to walk. Executive producer Andy Bauer's compromise between a snack of bitter honey and wintergreen lifesavers and opted that the compromise choice would be a filet fish The gist, your audio compromise between the sublime and the ridiculous, the trenchant and the flippant, the life-affirming and the soul-searching, the virtual and the real, the vital and the peripheral. Oomperu, depru, dupuru, and thanks for listening.